All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 216. Jason Lingren is with me, as he is always with me, and we have Austin Walters. We're going to be covering um, the idea of magnetics. For those who have followed, we've had a number of very well-trained doctors in what we might call uh, non-allopathic medicine methods that will state openly that things like what we call the cold, what we call the flu, are electromagnetic in nature. Uh, as you recall, way back with Dr. Lena, uh, it was described, and the Germans were getting ready to publish these ideas, uh, that a flu might be better described as electromagnetism vampirism, where the idea is that your electrical fields have dropped and your energy is being sucked off. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So how's it, man? Um, it's a, just the strangest spring. It is not warming up here, and there's still no leaves on the trees, and we are all the way to so-called Earth Day, a Tavistock construct. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's warm here, but I know several places are definitely not experiencing what they should be. Yeah, a lot of fours today. We're, we're recording on April 22, so that would be 422-22444. Um, but anyhow, uh, you got anything, or should we just jump right into this thing? No, let's make it happen. All right, man. Welcome, Austin Walters. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure, uh, listener and follower. So this is a, a huge honor and privilege for me. I'm kind of excited to get into this. I like these ideas of electromagnetism. We just did a uh, an episode, again, on Walter Russell with the director of the Russell Museum, and as people who have looked into Russell know, uh, Walter Russell will state that the one main force in this world is electricity and other things like magnetism, a subset. I believe Russell refers to it as the daughter of electricity. But let's start here. Um, can you give us an overview of the use of magnets and stones for healing through what we call history? Absolutely. So you can follow it back as far as we can go back anyway in what is supposedly accepted history. The Yellow Emperor's Canon of Internal Medicine mentions using magnets applied to acupuncture points for various types of ailments. Um, we can look at the Veda scriptures and they allude to what they refer to as instruments of stone, which is not 100% magnetic, so to speak. We can't prove or disprove that, but it is mentioned. Um, the Greeks referred to it. Uh, Hippocrates also used stones to supposedly cure sterility, uh, things like epilepsy, diarrhea, and so forth. We also look at Cleopatra jumping into the Egyptian era, and she reportedly used to sleep with a magnetic lodestone on her forehead to increase clarity and dreaming. The Tibetan monks used magnets for the same purposes. Um, Buddhists have used them throughout history. Paracelsus, I mean, we could go on ad nauseum about it. So I think one of the things that's important to lay down here is in the modern era, we've become very gross, for lack of better terms, in how we perceive the natural world. Uh, what I notice when we go back to older cultures is they're very subtle in what they understand. And I think the idea of magnetism, I don't know if you agree with me here, is a subtle energy that you really have to kind of be tuned in to know anything about. I would completely agree with that. And after figuring out some of the things that I have been able to witness firsthand in my own experience, um, especially in relating to what we're going to cover today, I would absolutely agree that um, we, I think here in the West, we have this mentality that everything needs to be bigger and better. And the more powerful something is, the bigger the outcome or the greater the effect it's going to have. And that's just simply not true. 
Right. Much of much of what we do in the West is materialistic. Even our science has become just gross hyper materialism. You know, the idea if it can't be put on a scale, it doesn't exist, which is a bit ironic in times like these because the world has gone crazy over a thing that we can't see. And from my point of view, doesn't exist. But what's your view on how the ancient cultures would define disease as compared to how mainstream defines it, you know, where we live in the West? Well, I think um, when you had Dr. Lando on and you guys laid down some very interesting topics in terms of mind creating reality and things of this nature, if we jump back and we start to look at how ancient Chinese medicine, how uh, Hindu Ayurveda is purported to work, we, we start looking at energy. I have gone over certain texts and uh, you don't find... <laughs> You don't find them mentioning disease in the way that we describe it here in the West, where you're looking at a causative um, germ, so to speak, or anything like that. Um, They look at it in terms of movement and energy and how certain things will offer a heating effect or a cooling effect. And so I think we really need to um, pay homage to the way that they um, looked at dis-ease in the body. What what is causing something to be out of balance? You know, uh, right now I'm going back through another version of the book of Enoch. This is a little off center for what we're talking about, but there's a reason I'm bringing it up. The Ethiopian uh, translations is what I'm working my way through. I read, I don't know about half of it last night, but in in the beginning, it says a very interesting thing. Uh, You want to know about the godly perfection in our world. Look at nature. Look at how the seasons come. Look at how those stars rise when they're supposed to, and they follow their course as they always have. This idea of perfection, which is demonstrated in nature, and I think that's really what you're alluding to here. But Jason, do you want to get magnetically drawn in here? (laughs) I'm quite interested, actually, on what the ancients thought magnetism was. I know they've used the term lodestones and things like that, but what is it, the further back we go, that they thought that they were messing around with? You know, I think that's a a very interesting question that you bring up, Jason. I would also like to know the answer to that. And I think there are so many things that have been um, occulted from our purview in uh, the way that we are taught history. I think there's a a whole lot of things that we are not aware of. And I think that a lot of people downplay the idea that these were really old ideas, very primitive ideas. But I think that we are uh, at least a large portion of us are starting to wake up to the fact that that is just simply nonsense, that that's not true. Um, I think that they knew a lot more than we give them credit for. And I think that over time, as we've seen in prior episodes, you guys have done the fingers of the Jesuits kind of stepping in and erasing things, adding stuff to history. And I think it's important that we go back and we actually start looking at these ideas. Um, You know, Tesla, um, if you can believe he was a real person in the way we are told, also described the entire universe the same way, you know, all these cultures are mentioning the same idea over and over and over that everything is vibration and frequency, uh, magnetism, electricity, it all ties into this same concept. And I think that we really need to start to fully wrap our heads around it. We, of course, have not been told about any of this stuff. Um, You know, I'm 37 years old and most of this stuff I am just now discovering for myself. Um, So I imagine if we had all been taught these things, um, from you know a childhood point of view that we would be so much more advanced than we are right now. You know, if it's related, if we're thinking about systems that are related or based on the perfection of nature, I'm all in. But I can actually remember, believe it or not, 
Um, I was not at Woodstock that I can recall. Um, since that was a staged event, uh, I probably wasn't there. If you can't remember, you probably were there. Yeah, that's what they claim, but I'm saying it probably wasn't there as we think it was. But uh, I can actually remember the first time magnets came on my radar. In grade school, we were given, I don't know whether it was needles or something like that, and we were given a magnet and shown how to rub it down the length of it and magnetize that little piece of metal. And I was amazed by that as a child. But the thing about magnets that's kind of stunning is... If you find magnetic things, and I don't know if this is true, but they don't really lose their charge, do they? Mostly magnets in nature. I mean, it's it's literally like a lodestone. It's got this load that it continues to carry. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, I've still got a magnet that my father gave to me um, that I used to play with as a child, and he still had it in his toolbox. And a couple of years ago, he said, you know, son, you used to play with this here. You can have it now or whatever. And I remember um, it had, it was like a horseshoe magnet. It had a little metal bar that, you know, the magnet would stick to, and that prevented the field from, you know, going outside of where the magnet was attached to. And I've noticed now as an adult, you know, that's, it's not quite as strong as it was. And he used to play with it as a child too. So the staying power of these things is, is pretty amazing. Do magnets lose their charge? I mean, everyone remembers that, like from the cartoons that you're describing, they usually are red and silver or red and white. It's like a horseshoe shaped thing. Um, do these things lose their charge? Um, like when you take a, a, a pin or something, a, you know, a stick of metal and you rub it with a magnet and it gets a charge that eventually wears off, I think. Right. But I mean, if you get a, a magnet from nature, does that ever diminish? It diminishes, but it would be such a long time as to not even be a, a thought for you or I, <laughs> you know, by the time that that even happened, it wouldn't matter for us. So, all right, well, let's get down to the nuts and bolts. Um, there's an idea that human have a biofield. And I think this was represented in most of the old cultures that I've looked at. And in modern times, we might say that this is like an electromagnetic field around a human being. I don't know, this might relate to the idea of an aura or some other things that people consider new agey, which actually don't have to be. Um, there's a basis that we can look at that's not all hoity-toity nonsense from the 60s. Um, but to get back to the idea of the biofield, when we had a couple of our very well worldly trained doctors, uh, the idea was that when your biofield diminished, your electromagnetic field diminished, that's when you can really get sick. Almost like how would I describe this? When, you're, when your biomagnetic field drops, it draws in negative things, which end up being the cause of the sickness. So let's get into these ideas about the human body having a biofield. Sure, absolutely. So I, I got into some of this once I discovered the therapy we're going to discuss today. But I came across, uh, you'll find, you can find endless videos now on, on YouTube and things like that until they decide to scrub it. Um, but people like, I, I don't know if your listeners have heard of Eileen Day McCusick. Um, I know that, uh, when you guys had Dr. Kaufman on, he had mentioned the use of tuning forks, um, you know, and sound healing, and, and we can get into some of that if we want to, but Eileen Day basically discovered a, a modern day method for detecting the human biofield using sound, uh, with the use of tuning forks tuned to specific frequencies. And what she discovered through repetition and using case studies is that she could effectively determine the outer edge of this supposed field and the pitch of the tuning fork would change the sound. And so she would repeat this process and realize that through 
the use of these tuning forks, she could manipulate certain buzzing sounds and things like that in this purported biofield. Um, and that's just one example of a person experimenting outside of the box. We could talk about curlium photography, the fact that we can visualize these electric fields around certain living foods and what they look like um, after they've been microwaved or, or baked and how the electric field is diminished. You know, I think anyone who's a musician, both Jason and I play musical instruments. Um, I don't know how you walk away from what you've learned uh, in the course of dealing with vibrating strings, which is a lot of the musical instruments we play. There's this sympathetic thing that goes on. It can be illustrated with the tuning fork. If you have two tuning forks and you tap one on the table to get it vibrating and you put it in proximity to another one that has not been activated, it begins to sympathetically vibrate. And there's nature showing you um, that there's an interaction going on. The same thing could be done on a guitar with two strings and a similar frequency. Um, it goes on and on and on. But I, I think at the base of, of what we're talking about, this has to relate to the idea of chakras and prana, doesn't it? And I think this is another problem. You know, it's why I made up the word sky clock. I wanted to talk about the importance of the sky, but if I said astronomy, half the people said NASA lies and they walked away. If I said astrology, half the people said, oh, that's hoity-toity nonsense, and they walked away. So I invented a new term, the sky clock, so that we could all dump the baggage and think about what we're actually looking at and what we're actually talking about. I think chakras and prana, um, while I don't think it's maybe appropriate to give them new new language, I'm pointing it out because there's so much new age nonsense um, with the idea of chakras and prana. But what we're talking about relates to these ideas, right? Life energy. Absolutely. Um, and again, we look at the ancient cultures, you know, you could look at the ancient cultures or what we're told are ancient um, all day long. And they all are mentioning the same thing. And I would submit to everyone, isn't that important? Um, isn't that idea that is embedded in those cultures important for us to examine? And that maybe, like you say, Kerr, a lot of the time, there's no lie in nature. So when we're looking at these things, you know, th this was, I would assume for them, a very common knowledge. And what they did was they took it and they perfected it. But, you know, you can also show even in modern research up into the 50s uh, with Wilhelm Reich and his theory of um, what he called organ energy, uh, which is the same thing. We're talking about the exact same thing. And he you know, took it off into a different direction. And that's a topic for an entirely episode all on its own. But um, the idea that there are these energy centers that are moving through us um, to me is a, a very acceptable way of looking at not just human life, but life in general, the way that we see plants grow, the way we see animals move. It all ties into this idea of energy. Well, let's talk about organ for a minute. Um, do, you, do you have some experience with organ? I actually do. Um, my wife and I decided, uh, I would say back right before uh, Christmas, there's a gentleman that I follow who actually makes these devices and... Um, so I decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to experiment with it and we're going to get a couple of pieces. And so we did. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience that my sleep has been much deeper. Um, I, I used to be a very, very light sleeper. I'd wake up at the drop of a pin. But now I find that I'm sleeping all the way through the night. I find that I have extremely vivid dreams. And it pushed me so far as to even go and get books that were written by Wilhelm Reich, read about the uh, theory behind what he was calling organ. 
And again, it started to tie into all these other ideas of prana and chi and ki. It's all the same thing, ether. But I think what's interesting about Wilhelm Reich is that, you know, he decided to actually do some scientific experiments. And if you go on the internet and you start trying to look into it, you know, there's so many people that poo-poo the idea because he was a psychiatrist and he was looking at the function of the human orgasm and its role in drawing in life force and expelling life force. And usually it stops there. I don't know if you want me to continue on that line of thought though, Crow. Well, what, what I was getting at is Oregon came on the radar for a lot of people, probably in the 2000s is when it reemerged again based on Reich's work. But as I got into it, I realized there was something there. One of the early experiments I did is I put Oregon devices out in the yard and you can take a camera and it seems to me, and I don't know for sure, I did spend some time on this, but not as much as I needed to. If you leave it in the garden out where there's things growing and you do it for a period of time like week, uh, you start to notice things about the plants, the bugs. But at night, if you go out at nighttime and you put a flash on your camera and you take real quick, you see these little light dots all around it. And at first I thought that's just dust, but as I moved the organ around, I realized it's related to the organ. So then I started thinking, well, can this be measured? Is anyone actually measuring this in some way to demonstrate um, more than just what people are saying? And then, of course, I started to relate it to the much older things that I'm very familiar with, like the difference between the metals and why they're associated with the planet. As a matter of fact, last night in the Book of Enoch, one of the first thing it, it says, is lead or lead no what is it is it lead and tin yeah it's lead and tin because i remembered saturn and jupiter are not made in this world and there's this special angel in a river um, putting these softer metals out my point here is when most people make organ devices it's like i'm going to take a handful of copper i'll grab some aluminum and i'll you know it's not it's not measured or specific, and in my view, understood very well. They're just throwing these things together. So I guess before we move on, I'll ask, are there people out there that are literally measuring what's going on and paying attention to the ingredients that go to make an organ device? Are you aware of any of this? And to add to that, do you actually know what it's doing from a technical standpoint? Yeah, so I can touch on a little bit of that um, just from doing the, the research I've done on Oh, Wilhelm Reich specifically, but the uh, the two makers that I have acquired pieces from, uh, one of them I, I do trust very well. He does actually take the time to measure out, and he he gets even more specific than that. And he has a whole process where he programs the crystals with specific frequencies before he puts them into the resin, and then they spend a week out in the sun and all these different things, but he is actually taking very specific measurements and he's extremely uh, thorough with the types of metals he's trying to put into the devices. I don't know about other makers out there. I know that he does have some, I don't know how you would say it, but he, it's a frustration for him in a lot of ways because you have so many makers out there uh, putting crystals in some resin and then calling it what it's not. And so I think if you are to acquire that, you definitely would want to do some research on the person that's actually taking the time and intention in making these devices. Yeah, I, I would be very interested if people become aware of people who are quantifying this in some way, measuring it, and then paying attention to um, how these things are made and why. And part of what I got into is I started to think about the resin too. And I'll just add this in before we move on to things that we're actually planned to talk about here. But resin is nasty stuff. 
but you don't realize it unless you see it before it hardens and smell it before it hardens. And then after it's made, it's like here forever and ever and ever. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've wondered about that aspect of it because I don't think I can make a correlation with the resin people are using with the natural world. So Austin, let's talk about disease from an energetic perspective, because as we've discussed with several other people, it seems to have a lot more to do with it than the mainstream suggests. I would 100% agree with that. In fact, getting into the therapy that I'm now certified in, none of this was on my radar prior to, I would say, even so much as last year in terms of the types of energy that have been spoken about in ancient cultures. And of course, you know, I've, I've been listening to you guys since the beginning. So the idea of it is there, but actually having uh, application of it and that kind of thing. But there are a lot of people out there who have demonstrated that the body is really an electric organism or a bioelectric organism. You know, when you move a muscle, it is generating electricity. That's, that's how our organism works. I mean, we're be between 70 and 85% salt water, the, the perfect conductor for an organism that uses electricity. And so when we're thinking about disease, you know, of course, because we are programmed and taught from a young age that this thing is going to get inside you and that it makes you sick. We're never taught about the other aspect of it that, you know, um, it's like you said, Crow, the other day, you know, you go to the foot doctor and he's only concerned about the foot or <laughs> you go to the hand doctor. He's only concerned about the hand, but we're looking at the entire body. What is it? Well, it's, it's clearly electric and the, the heart by itself proves that when somebody is on the operating table and they're, they're going into cardiac arrest, what do they do? They shock your heart. They bring you back to life with electricity. And so if we can all agree that, yes, that is definitely a thing, well, then would it not also make sense for us to look at disease and, and what that actual word is, you know, dis-ease? Um, I, I think people don't really think about that, but it is, it is uh, something that is away from the balance of the normal or homeostasis. And so when we start talking about diseases and um, how they operate from an energetic perspective, you definitely can't have that conversation without looking into environments that organisms thrive in. And being that, you know, our gut is filled with billions of bacteria, that we have trillions of cells, all these different things, you know, we're, we're more um, than just a walking bag of flesh. We are basically a symbiotic uh, ecosystem and it is filled with all different types of cells and organs and organisms that all function on their own electromagnetic frequencies and vibration. And so disease primarily, in my opinion, is absolutely caused from the lack of electricity or the lack of movement and motion. Emotions tie into this. And so I think that people need to start wrapping their head around the idea that, you know, that lemon juice that you drank has a huge effect and that you should be looking at how it is going to be applied to your body. So one thing about magnets and the idea of magnetism is it's, it's fascinating to almost everybody. I mean, how many people can say they haven't, you know, gone on YouTube and watched the rare earth magnet go down the copper tube? Um, many people suspect that the highest technologies that they call anti-gravitic and things like this are somehow based on magnetism. Um, but where, where is research in the modern era with regard to magnetic fields? Has it even entered mainstream at all? Or is it pretty much the same old, same old where the guys who aren't studying allopathic 
are getting into the older ideas where they find value. Uh, where's that? Where's the research in the, in the modern era with regard to you know the mainstream? Well, I think it starts out around 1936. A, a gentleman by the name of Albert Roy Davis uh, was the first person to really, I say the first person, you know, this might have been known to the ancients, but the first person in our era uh, to discover that magnetic poles have different properties. So the North Pole of a magnet and the South Pole of a magnet, while they may look the same under a ferromagnetic solution, they have entirely different effects on living organisms. Into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he had continued some of that work, and people can go look up a book called The Magnetic Blueprint of Life, which is sort of just a basic overview of Albert Roy Davis and his partner, Walter C. Rawls Jr., and they give kind of a basic overview on some of the early research that they were doing to show the different effects that a North Pole negative magnet and a South Pole positive magnet would have. And their, their work, unfortunately, like anything else, like you said, if, if you're not going down the allopathic route, you tend to get poo-pooed. And, you know, they're no different. Um, I found that book in an antique shop on the shelf kind of deal for 80 cents, you know, and here is a wealth of good information. Um, but because it doesn't follow this particular model we have in the West, it's just unknown. What is the difference between the poles? Can you, can you sum that up in some meaningful way? Sure. Absolutely. So a, a North pole negative magnet would have a, a cooling effect or an alkalizing effect. Um, it draws away inflammation things of this nature, the South Pole positive portion of the magnet would be something that would cause inflammation or irritation or blood flow to an area that causes heat. So here we have the same idea, the yin and the yang, the cooling and the heating effects. And what they found is that usually for most living organisms, that the North Pole negative side of the magnet is more beneficial for, I would say, daily use if you were using the magnets in, um, in a static specific way. So if you're using the magnetic negative only, it is going to be more beneficial and you wouldn't necessarily want to use the South Pole positive on, say, like a wound or a cut. But what they did find in their research is that the South Pole positive portion of the magnet is very beneficial to plants because it causes uh, growth. So it, it has this sort of energizing effect. Do we know why? I don't know that, that really any of the research that they had done was fully published. So I would be curious to know exactly why or if uh, other researchers, you know, I know the Russians have done a lot in terms of magnetic research. And I would be very curious to see um, if they've really pared down and figure out um, if it has to do with the toroidal spin of the field or something to do with that. So by definition, a magnet has to have two poles, right? It's not magnetic if there's not two poles. Is that correct? Yes, that would be correct. And north is always negative. South is always positive. It's supposed to be. Um, and they even mentioned in their book that there's a little bit of confusion when people start labeling how magnets are used. And I would have to pull up the, the specific description on how they say that it is supposed to be identified. Um, but that's also another reason why you should, you know, make sure bef before, if you were to try to do any of the single pole therapy on yourself, that you would, you know, research and make sure you know which uh, side you're using is correct. Well, as we go on here, we're going to jump into biomagnetism. But anyone who hasn't seen the videos of a rare earth magnet going down a copper tube, you should. It's basically will be reminiscent in your mind of Marty McFly's hoverboard. 
Um, that's what it reminds me of. But let's get into biomagnetism. What is it? And uh, what is biomagnetic pair therapy? So I actually discovered this last year, in fact. And so I would even say that I'm a, a greenhorn, so to speak, but I, I've spent a lot of time diving into it. I took the time to actually go get certified in the therapy um, because it, it to, to not make a pun, but it did, it drew me in. And I felt like it changed the way that my, my life path was going to go. All that being said, biomagnetic pair therapy is essentially the use of two magnets in opposite polarities that are going to be put in uh, specific spots on the body in specific pairs in order to affect a change in that area. Um, it was first discovered by a Mexican doctor by the name of um, Isaac Goyes Duran. And he, it's kind of an interesting history. And, and I even tried finding, um, you know, the original points of the history and it's a little bit fuzzy. And of course it, at some point ties back into NASA, <laughs> but, um, essentially Dr. Goy's found out that by balancing these two pairs, it kind of goes back to this idea of placing magnets on acupuncture points that somehow it would balance out the area or the pH in that area. You know, it's kind of interesting because you can imagine back to everyone's seen the the full-sized anatomical model of all the acupuncture points and any thinking person would think, my Lord, that is a lot of information must have taken forever to start to get there. Uh, we've had recent guests that showed when I think it was Mao Zedong came and took control of China, he started to try to allopathize uh, they're ancient, ancient nature-based medicines. And from an alchemical point of view, what he did is he, he removed spirit from things like acupuncture. The reason I'm using that is you can imagine that they could magnetize those needles and add another level of uh, the things they're doing. But I think it was Berlando pointed out uh, the Japanese that are so good at being in tune with nature uh, saved the older Chinese knowledge as the, the recent push was to literally remove the idea of spirit. So if you have soul, spirit, and body in your, in your medical system paired with nature, uh, the effort was put there to remove the spirit, which starts to echo what's happened to us with allopathy. But anyone who's alive right now has seen ads on TV for the magnetic bracelet, the shoe insert, the copper socks, the copper, you know, all the, all these things. Um, is there a difference between the idea of biomagnetism in the therapeutic sense, like a therapeutic magnet and the idea of these kind of bracelets and inserts and, you know, magnetized things to wear on your body? Is there any value there? I would absolutely say there is a, a vast difference. And I think a lot of people get really confused um, just due to the uh, hardcore amount of advertising that has gone on. Um, you know, the, the magnet industry is a billion plus dollar industry. The difference here being that, you know, biomagnetism is specifically designed to deal with disease in the body. Um, we're talking about, you know, somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I've got a, a UTI. Uh, how do we remedy that or how do we um, work with the body in order to affect a change and to basically get rid of the UTI? So again, we're going back to this idea of using uh, positive and negative magnets in specific pairs. We're, we're using the opposite polarities always, except for extremely rare occasions. Um, but that's the, uh, one of the differences between biomagnetism and say like the magnetic bracelet. 
Um, the other difference being that you're talking about strength of the magnets, the idea of having something again, like we talked about earlier, you know, that in the West, everything has to be amped up to a, the nth degree with therapeutic magnets. Um, you can find, you know, the sky's the limit. You can find ones that are uh, very low power. You can find ones that are extremely powerful. Um, but for biomagnetism purposes, we're looking at magnets that are of medium intensity, um, because I think those work the best with the body's subtle energy. So we're talking in terms of Gauss, um, somewhere in the ballpark of around a thousand to maybe 1500 and no more than that, unless you have, um, as extremely rare cases, maybe if you're dealing with a tumor or something like that. Are those natural or are those man-made? They are man-made. In a lot of cases, you would be using, say, a neodymium magnet. Um, uh, most of the applications that I use them for are just your uh, typical ferromagnet. So they are man-made. I'd like to get my hands on an actual lodestone. Um, I think that would be really interesting, but <laughs> so <when laughs> unfortunately, say, I don't have access. When you say like the neodymium, that doesn't occur in, in nature. Someone's got to make that. How do they do it? Is it like electrical current that does it? Those are used for speakers, actually. I'm familiar with those. A lot of these rare earth elements. Yep, um, that absolutely spot on there. Um, so I think it would be interesting for me to be able to, you know, if we could actually find some lodestones and we could identify the, you know, the different um, poles of those lodestones and then try this therapy using those. That would be a very interesting thing, I think. So I noticed in your notes you had a thing about leg length, and I think this is interesting because I never knew it was a thing until one day <clears throat> someone I was working with had said the chiropractor told him one leg was shorter than the other. And then as this conversation progressed, like half the people there were saying, oh, yeah, my, my doctor told me my, my left leg's a little shorter, this kind of thing. What is, what, what is it about leg length discrepancy? Is there something so to this? Yeah. And so whenever I got certified as a biomagnetic pair therapist, this, uh, I had no idea what I was really getting into. <laughs> so, uh, this absolutely blew my mind. And in fact, every time that I deal with this, it, it's still, it's almost like magic. Uh, I understand the process behind it, but it's still like magic. I have yet to find anyone that I have put hands on that does not have one leg shorter than the other. Really? And Absolutely. It's, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, you know, and I, same thing, I've been to a chiropractor before he adjusts your hips, so on and so forth. You go about your day, but the difference is, is that, um, in biomagnetism, we can actually correct that leg length discrepancy. If it is not an anatomical discrepancy, you can correct it in 15 minutes and it, the change is permanent. Come on, you got to go through this. I got to hear. So I understand what you're saying. As long as one physical bone is not actually shorter, then that's not causing the discrepancy or something like that. But what what is the treatment? How are you so, going at this? All right. So I'll give you a little bit of a backstory because this was, um, it, it just it was kind of confusing to me when I was sitting here taking this course and just going, well, what the heck is he even talking about? I thought I was here to learn about putting magnets on people to help with their cough, to help, you know, and, uh, and they basically explained. And again, a lot of this, I've even tried to go and look at the history and really you just hit a wall. It's very ambiguous. Um, supposedly Dr. Goys, um, before 1988, um, attended a, a medical conference where the head physician at NASA, Dr. Richard Broingmeyer, um, was giving a talk 
And he supposedly had figured out this leg length discrepancy due to the quote unquote astronauts coming back from space, which we know is <laughs> dun, holy. Dun, dun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But I think it's interesting, uh, this concept, he basically noticed that, you know, of course they would go through this supposed rigorous testing and yada, yada, and they would come back and they would um, be complaining of knee pain or hip pain. And apparently Dr. Broeringmeyer was a very methodical physician. And so he started looking at the, their entire body and he noticed this little discrepancy and it's usually about one to two centimeters. Um, and my father, it was actually close to an inch and a half. So it was pretty interesting. But he, his hypothesis or theory was that because they were outside of the Earth's magnetic field, that they somehow uh, underwent a physiological trauma of sorts, and that by exposing them to a magnetic field, that this would be corrected. Now, you fast forward to 1988 when uh, Dr. Goyce started working with patients, and um, his very first patient had nothing to do really with the leg length discrepancy. I don't think that he had made the connection yet, but he noticed as he was um, moving the magnet on certain points of the body that the leg would shorten. And um, we'll touch on that here in a little while, but his theory for this leg length discrepancy is that we all go through some sort of physiological trauma of sorts, and it causes um, sort of a permanent um, acidifying, if you can call it that, of the, uh, the tissue, and it causes this sort of retraction. And so by placing the proper pairing, it causes the um, balancing out of the pH to the area, and it causes the leg to then even back out. It's, I swear, Crow, it's the weirdest. So, so wait a minute, you're talking about taking two magnets and putting them, first of all, what are the magnets? And secondarily, where are you putting them on the body to do this? So Dr. Goyes figured out that the, um, they, they call it the Goyes pair because it was his technically the first pair that he figured out. And by the way, there are about 350 pairs that, that you'll go through, um, in this therapy, but getting back to the point you're using in this case, this is really the only time when you're quote unquote diagnosing or scanning the body that you're using a positive magnet and you're placing it on the kidney. And so you're using the South Pole positive end. Now in biomagnetism, um, we mark them red and black. So we would just use red for the positive. Um, but if you place it on the kidney on the right-hand side, you will notice that the leg lengthens out. And so for, for him, he had to figure out, okay, where is the, the pair to you know, solidify this, this pairing, so to speak. And so he figured out that it is basically on on the very top of the head not quite um the very middle but going back more toward the crown <laughs> and very poignant to mention the crown but once you've had that pair there for a certain amount of time the leg is now perfectly even and permanently, I've, permanently as far as i can tell we've used my wife as an experiment and she actually had an auto accident back in october and so she was subsequently going through physical therapy and the physical therapist, uh, obviously checked that and he confirmed for her that her, her feet were even, and he even made a comment. He said, well, that's kind of weird. I don't normally see that. And so for me, that confirmed in my mind, I mean, uh, you know, whenever I gave her her first session, it's been over a year and I have yet to see any difference. So you so, did that. You did that. I, I did that. Yeah. Wow. That is, 
to further make it even more interesting, I've also looked at this leg length discrepancy on my almost three-year-old nephew and his legs are uneven. So I find that really very odd. <laughs> I don't really know what to make of it because we just honestly, we don't know what exactly it, causes that. Is there some idea before we get into kinesiology, uh, is there some idea that a magnet could be too powerful Somehow, you know, electromagnetic field could be detrimental. And, and I, as I'm asking you this, everyone's probably seen that footage where they take this poor frog and they put him in a super big, super strong magnetic field. And he's like floating as if he was in make-believe space, you know, looking at everyone like, what are these sick giants doing to me? But it makes me wonder because, well, I guess they don't show you what happens to the frog after the fact. Um, you're assuming the frog comes out of that and he's okay. But, um, and, and the other thing I'm thinking of it, like a cat scan, you know, you're going to this giant magnetic thing. Is, is there any sense that these things can be bad for you? I would a hundred percent agree that up to a certain point you start to notice, um, it's just like anything else in life. You know, you can take it anything to an extreme, you know, exercise is good for you to a point. But if you continue, you're going to exhaust the machine. And so I think the same thing can be applied with magnetics, with diet, with um, radio frequencies, any of these things. And I think, as you know, Crow, when man steps in and we start meddling, things get a little bit hairy. <laughs> and so I think anything um, that is going to be of a, a constant field, um, anything higher than 1500 gauss is probably not going to be beneficial to the body. Now, with that being said, Years ago, I learned about a Dr. Bob Beck, um, not to be confused with Dr. Robert O. Becker, who wrote The Body Electric. But Dr. Beck had this same sort of theory about electricity in the body and that kind of thing. And he subsequently uh, developed a device that basically put electrodes on the wrist and you would use microcurrents of electricity in order to effectively kind of neutralize bacteria. And that's a side topic. But he noticed that in some of the people that he was working with, um, that they would still remain sick after his therapy. And he developed a electromagnetic pulse device. And my point here is that in that device, he noticed that up to 6,000 gauss was safe. But again, you're talking about doses. And so his device was a time varied electromagnetic pulse. It was not a constant thing. And so you would have 6,000 gauss come out of the face of this magnet and it would be a hundredth of a second worth of a pulse. And he noticed that that was actually beneficial to the body. But again, we weren't talking about, you know, being exposed to that 6,000 gauss for hours on end. Do you know what, do you know the power of like a CAT scan? Cause here's the thing. I had one once and the whole thing going in was, of course, you got to remove all the metal. You got to do all this stuff. But then they're like telling you, are you going to be cool? A lot of people go in here and freak out. And I started thinking, well, why would someone freak out? You know, what, what is it that's causing someone to freak out? And they claim that it's tight in there and there's all this noise, but do you have any idea what kind of power is on like those big tubes they put you in, in a CAT scan? I don't know the exact figures for that, but I do know it is thousands. <laughs> um, I, I actually had to have an MRI done for, uh, for surgery that I had last year. Yeah. And and it's just um, the, the power of these things and the duration, you know, I don't, I do know the gentleman who invented the MRI actually had to come up with a specific circuit in order for the magnets used, say, an MRI or the CAT scan machine um, to not completely destroy human tissue. 
And so, uh, you know, for people out there listening, you could go research that. It's pretty interesting. But I think that's a huge tell. Maybe we shouldn't be meddling with stuff like that, even though it gives us the opportunity, uh, you know, to see stuff in the body. But I mean, come on, man. <laughs> so is there a level like how much you can crank that thing up before it starts doing real damage? Can the actual machine do it or is it much higher than that thing puts out? I think it's much higher than the machine puts out. So I guess um, you could look at it as um, he put some sort of a governor in place. But I do know that the, the MRI machine specifically will align all of the hydrogen protons in your body. And that's how they're actually able to kind of do this imaging. And I'm obviously, I'm no doctor or expert in that specific field, but I just think that, again, it's it's like with these modern conveniences we have, you know, um, to a point there's a benefit, but at the end of the day, you're looking at something that's fairly detrimental in the long term. So, hmm. you know, I'm a pretty calm individual. And as they told me that, I started thinking, well, what is it that freaks people out? Uh, they claim it's the kind of claustrophobic idea, but I got in there and I'm not claustrophobic. And I got to say it was uncomfortable. Uh, I was more than ready to be done when it was done. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I'll be doing that again. Um, but I never really thought of it too much after that. But let's get into, you know, with Walter Russell's work and other things, um, they're underscoring a thing that I had arrived at maybe a year before I bumped into Russell. I realized electricity's it, man. And people have seen, um, what's the guy's name? The electrical genius, Jason, that I can never remember. Dollard. Dollard. You know, people have seen the work of Dollard and they've heard the tales of a so-called Tesla. All these ideas about the importance of electricity and the claim being made that people even trained as master's students or PhDs don't fully understand electricity, um, even alternating current. And when I first heard that, I thought, that can that be true? Then I bump into Russell. He says, yes, there's one force, says all these things. So we understand that people are pretty much bioelectric. Is there a pole on the human body? Is there a pole that changes? Does it have an effect on like oxygen levels and these kinds of things? Well, I think, you know, going back into the research, it was real interesting and touching back on Wilhelm Reich for a second. He also had this theory that organ energy or life energy, what have you, came out of the palms of the hands and the feet. And, um, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that later, but I, I think it's very interesting. Chinese medicine notes this same sort of idea that you have sort of like a North and a South. And now, I haven't gone as far into the research probably as I should to determine, you know, which pole is which on which hand. Um, but I do think that there's this idea there that in order for things to work, they need to work together like a circuit. So you have to have positive, you have to have negative, and uh, you have to be able to bring those things into balance. And even whenever I was taking um, the certification, the physical therapist that was teaching this was even talking about how, you know, basically the, uh, the yin and yang of the body, the way that we would look at it would be that right side and left side are delineated and that running through the center would be the, um, the North and the South pole. So I like your idea there, Crow. And, um, I would really love to be able to, to dive more into that with actual research with, you know, to see how we could prove that out. All right. So we're, we're getting close to the top of the hour, but I want to squeeze one more thing in that I think is interesting. I can again remember the first time I realized that there were metals in the world that were non-magnetic because I was raised around boats and my father was teaching me about why they use brass on ships 
all the reasons, but um, can you quickly, before we wrap up hour one, is there like a classification about what materials, what metals are magnetic and, and things that aren't? By the way, are there things that aren't metal that are magnetic? I would say that after uh, coming to a, a broader understanding, I don't think that there is anything that is not affected by a magnetic field. Um, with that being said, you basically have sort of the, the top three classifications of magnets. You would have uh, ferromagnetic materials, which we would know as, you know, say like iron, iron filings, nickel, cobalt, things of that nature would be attracted in the way that we normally think about a magnet pulling Fer something ferrous to it. metals. So you're basically saying ferrous metals, right? Abs absolutely. A hundred percent. And then, you know, the science you get into uh, delineates a little further. You have paramagnetic metals, which are they're weakly attracted by magnets. So you uh, things like aluminum and copper, um, they essentially take on the properties of a magnet. So they themselves become a very weak magnet in the presence of that field. But their attraction can only be measured with highly sensitive instruments, things like platinum sodium, which is also very interesting since we're talking about applying magnets to the body. Um, and paramagnetic materials. Uh, and then finally, you've got diamagnetic materials, which when they are exposed to a strong magnetic field, they induce a weak magnetic field in the opposite direction. So they're kind of doing this pushing away. I found it really interesting that silver is considered to be a diamagnetic material. Um, when, when, when you think about um, you know, drinking ionic silver, what are we doing there? But yeah, that's, that's basically the classification. What, what about gold? Where does gold get classified and all that? You know, that is a good question. I would have to look it up, but I would be um, interested to see if it has to do with the opposite effect of silver. Um, I'll have to I'll have to look that up. You know, it would be interesting to me since each idea of a planetary classification, so-called planetary, has a metal associated like, you know, Jupiter's tin, Saturn's lead. Um, what's interesting to me is what I'm starting to realize is, is magnetically, uh, we're pointing out some very different characteristics there, as far as I know, and I'm totally just a layman. But that does bring uh, the first hour of 216 to a close. We're going to get into things like the strength of magnetic fields, pH, how do magnets interact in healing? How long do you do these things? What's the difference between reservoirs and special pairs? Biomagnetism. We have quite a list to get through. Uh, food and electricity. The idea of bacterial, fungal, parasitic, and alkaline as uh, put in fields of magnetism. Quite a bit to get through. So come join us for the second hour of 216 at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. That is the only Crow site. Everything else is a fraud, and there are starting to be a number of them. Before we close up, Austin, please give out your contact info. People can find me. I'm usually primarily on Instagram. My Instagram name is at bone underscore and, that's A-N-D as in Delta, underscore shadow. So it's at bone and shadow. You can find me on Facebook, although I really only use that for essentially the crow discussion group and some other things of that nature. Um, but you can direct message me there. If you want to contact me via email, my email is hollow design at yahoo.com. There it is, man. Anyhow, say it one more time. C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Hope to see you all for the second hour of free speech rules. And since free speech rules, we may begin to talk a little bit more about so-called viruses in terms of an actual sane assessment. There it is, man. Join us. Cheers. 
is the enemy of knowing. 